0: Would you please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 15, which you can find on page 969 if you're using one of the Blue Bibles. Especially in the last four chapters of this book, Paul positions himself to visit Corinth And remember that he's going to confront teachers who are touting themselves in the church. Regarding a spirit of self-promotion, Paul has just said at the end of chapter 10, he has just said, it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one the Lord commends. But now, since these false teachers are attacking him, He has to, in a way, commend his own ministry in spite of what he just said, so he proceeds on this with caution and a little apologetically as he starts out in verse 11. Please follow along, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in the first verse. "'I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ.' But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough." Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you... And was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, which is truth. Please use the scriptures this morning to increase our understanding of the sufficiency of Christ so that our faith may cling to him alone. And we ask it in his name. Amen. During. My growing up years, my family used to spend a significant amount of time at the ranch of a family friend, experiencing a little bit of country life and helping out around the ranch a bit. Ranch life generally requires boots. There's riding boots and there are rubber boots and there are hiking boots and there are work boots. <clears throat> 'Cause there's dirt and there's mud and there's other stuff lying around the ranch, so you don't want to bring all that into the house. Actually, at this ranch they had a mud room, that's where you walk in, you take off your boots in the mud room, and then you wear your socks in the rest of the house. That was the rule. And it, it functioned to keep the dirt in a confined space. It was a kind of strategy for dirt. Obviously you don't want to track dirt, etc., all over the house. But then again, you can't have a perfectly clean house. You're at a ranch, so you need a mudroom to contain the mess there. And the mudroom is the main place where the dirt gets swept up, the flies are swatted, and so forth, and then the rest of the house, relatively clean. You know, conflict, and in our passage, of course, conflict over spiritual matters. If we think about controversy and disagreement over doctrine, or over morals, well, it creates a relational mess, kind of like mud. We could compare church conflict to mud. Some people seem to revel in conflict, get energized by it, and as it were, track mud all over the house. uh, They welcome it everywhere because they like it. And others avoid conflict at all costs. And what Paul is doing here is he's modeling a wiser way it has a gospel wisdom to it. We could call it the mudroom model, where Paul accepts that some conflict is necessary. This particular thing he's doing, he calls it a kind of foolishness. It's a thing you would never do unless you had to, but he's willing to do it for the gospel's sake. So we're going we're to unpack this this morning. It very much dovetails with what we have been talking about. But Walking through the passage, we'll see this jealousy for the church, a very commendable kind of jealousy, And then what I've called necessary contradictions, which means he gets into an argument he can't avoid. And then finally, the question of, is it ever okay to demonize somebody? Because that's pretty much what Paul does in the last few verses. So first we start with jealousy for the church in verses 1 through 6. As Paul sets himself to defend his work, you can tell that he dreads, Self-promotion. He's a wise man, and beyond that, God has taught him humility. We're going to see in chapter 12 that God had given him a thorn in the flesh just for this purpose, to keep him from exalting himself, because Paul was a very talented man. So he does not like self-promotion, but now the slander of these false teachers is forcing him to defend himself and in some ways commend himself over them. And he hates it as a kind of foolishness. It is a sort of slippery ground that you would never go on to unless you absolutely had, had to. And so you can hear that hesitation in the way he starts out in verse 1. But Paul has to address a problem that is affecting the whole church body. Not only are there this cadre of, of teachers who have come in and kind of inserted themselves and love to promote themselves... But it has, to be, it has to be said that the, the problem extends to the rest of the church body because they tolerate it and at some level seem to even enjoy it. Uh, in verse 4, Paul says, you put up with it readily enough. And that just reminds us of how a, a leader who may be going overboard in his self-promotion category can, can impart a sort of feeling of importance to the whole body. And so people can kind of get used to and put up with basking in the glow of that greatness that always seems to be exuding from that person. I mention this because we have heard so many sad stories of church leaders who have overstepped and done wrong. But it has to be said that that couldn't happen unless the rest of the system was tolerating or enjoying it somehow. And so that's what Paul is saying here. Um, you put up with it, and so there's a, there's a system-wide problem, although the primary blame is, is with the self-promoters. Paul feels jealousy over them, kind of like a jealousy for a betrothed virgin. Or to translate that into modern terms, if you knew an engaged woman and you saw her flirting with other men, <laughs> not her betrothed, You'd feel jealous. You'd probably feel jealous for her betrothed, but you'd also feel jealous for her. You'd feel jealous for her honor, for her good name. You'd have a zeal that she improve her actions. And the church is like a bride engaged to the Lord Jesus. Various places in Scripture talk about this. The book of Revelation chapter 19 says that when Christ comes, there'll be this great marriage supper of the Lamb. That's like the wedding day. When the church and Jesus are joined in this perfect, holy, loving uh, union as Christ and the church compared to a wedding day, Paul is saying to the church, do not entertain other suitors, such as idolizing impressive teachers. It's It's a touchy subject and a painful one. If we find glory or comfort in leaders unduly, we are moving from a pure devotion to Christ. Um, This is something I need to reflect on as a minister, right? And this is something the church body needs to reflect on as the rest of the system. John Calvin, reflecting on this, wrote the following. He said, "...let ministers beware of pursuing their own interests rather than Christ's, and of intruding themselves in his place." Blessed, while well, they pretend to be the bridegroom's friends, they are in fact adulterers who seduce the bride's love to themselves. That is a strong way to put it. I mean, leave it to Calvin to put it in such bald terms. But boy, boy, do I need to hear that, right? And do we all need to hear that? It's Jesus. He's the groom. That's who our affection and devotion is to be trained on, period. Now, Paul brings up the serpent who deceived Eve by his cunning in verse 3 because this very much fits in. You may not know this story, but it's in Genesis chapter 3 if you want to look it up. In the craftiness of the serpent as he deceives Eve, notice how he twists God's things. The serpent takes the word of God, God's commandment, and he uses the tree that God made. And instead of using these things to point Eve to the goodness of God, He uses those things, twisting them around to point to something else entirely. He uses them to try to prove his own wisdom over and against God. And he invites Eve to, by crediting his wisdom, to become wise herself. You can see how that ties into the situation in Corinth. Because the teachers at Corinth, as far as we can tell, have orthodox content. At least Paul doesn't mention specifically any error that they teach. So as far as we know, they taught Christ and they taught the cross. But by using the gospel to show off their own skills, they have twisted the meaning of the gospel from being about God's goodness toward us and the sacrifice of his son to being about uh, their own accomplishments and wisdom and so forth. And how great the church could be if we just kind of got on board with this great program of having such great leaders like um, us. So that's what's going on here. Paul calls it another Jesus in verse 4. I think the only way to understand that is in line with what Calvin said. Another Jesus would refer to how these teachers have put themselves effectively in the groom's place. It's a different spirit because it's a spirit of superiority rather than the Holy Spirit with his love, joy, and peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. It's a different spirit. And Paul calls it a different gospel. In its effects, it centers people on achievements more than on the grace of God. So, having detailed this wonderful different gospel, Paul then refers to the super apostles who are teaching it. And yes, that's sarcasm. So you know that Paul was capable of sarcasm, which fills out the picture of the apostle a little bit more. He's... uh, no doubt it was a very, very interesting and engaging person. But he calls them a super apostles. And then Paul gets into the comparison in which he's commending himself. And this is this whole thing he's so uneasy about. But what he basically says in verse 6 is, they may speak better than me, but I know better than them. He says, I have better knowledge. He says, we have shown this to you at all times and in every way. And what he's especially referring to there is the fact that Paul planted the Corinthian church. You can read about this in Acts chapter 18. He stayed there for a year and a half. They have heard him teach the gospel. They have learned Christ from him in the depth and the richness of the Lord Jesus and his saving work. That is what Paul brings and he is saying to the Corinthians, you need to stick to me because if you stick to me as your apostle... What you're really doing is you're sticking to the Lord Jesus Christ because Paul was a true friend of the groom and he was always going to point them to the Lord Jesus. Paul's a faithful leader, a faithful friend of the bridegroom. Okay, that's that's that kind of jealousy. In the middle section, verses 7 to 12, we have this sort of argument, these necessary contradictions. Paul is contradicting his opponents some slander that has been said about him. And rather than going through this verse by verse, first I want to summarize to you what these verses are referring to. Paul is very emotional here and everything kind of comes tumbling out. And he's referring to events and facts that they know, but we can only infer. So so I'm going to back up a step and just talk about what we can tell about what's going on here. What's going on here is this kind of dispute around Paul declining financial support. When Paul first comes to Corinth, he does not take any financial support from the people. From what we can tell, that is generally his practice in church plants. In Acts chapter 18, we find out that Paul makes tents there in Corinth. So he does that to support himself. Then Macedonians and maybe others come and they give him money. So he's taking support from other regions. But what this enables him to do is to preach Christ as someone not in it for money. He could have rightly received support, of course, but he just kind of takes that off the table by not accepting any money. And that strategy of his ends up being important in Corinth from what we can tell. Because it seems that the bad teachers care very much indeed about money, we can... We can infer that with some pretty good confidence from verse 20, if just look down the page if you have the blue Bible, and that reference to uh, the Corinthians being enslaved and devoured. and that refers to a kind of mistreatment and suggests extracting money. So Paul, uh, then, with that in mind, continues to decline financial support from Corinth to show that he's different. In verse 12, he says he wants to undermine their claim that they operate just like him. So he's continuing to decline money. And the bad teachers no doubt resent this because it doesn't make them look good. For verse 11, we infer that they've counterattacked by saying, Paul doesn't love them. He thinks he's too good for our money, huh? That's what they're saying. So that's the backstory here, and that backstory helps to explain Paul's outburst in verse 7, where he basically says, I exalted you by not charging. And then he says, poetic license, but he says, I robbed other churches by taking money from them to help you guys. He says, I do love you. I do. You know, as Paul is entering into this, dispute reluctantly, we have to just acknowledge what Paul no doubt knows, which is that he's not going to convince these false teachers. Barring a surprising work of God in their hearts, they'll never... The argument's not going to work on them. No matter what Paul does, they'll try to use it to their advantage. If he takes pay, then they'll say, oh, he's just like us. If he refuses it, they'll say, what a snob. Uh, Whatever he does and whatever he says, they're going to they're going to use it to attack him. It is like this when you have any unfair critic. Whatever defense you lay down, whatever argument you offer, you just build them a road that they're going to march down and get you. They will use anything you say or do, twist it around to attack. An unfair critic is extremely hard to win over. Why engage them at all? You might have someone who is upset with you someone who has become your enemy, just to put it bluntly. They might take issue with your faith, your morals, or whatever. It's good to just keep in mind that probably what's going on there is that you, to them, represent some sort of loss. What you represent is something that they see as a minus sign coming into their life, whether they're able to articulate even what it is and why they don't like you, there's that kind of instinctive reaction to want to exclude or neutralize you that's a very hard thing to overcome. These bad teachers can never forgive Paul for blocking up their path to greatness. They want to be prominent, and who's standing in their place? Paul! And so... There's nothing he could do or say that would win them over, again, apart from the work of the Spirit. His not accepting money just becomes an outlet, outlet for their rage, and any defense he will offer becomes the grounds for a new accusation. And Paul surely knows this. Again, we ask the question, why is Paul bothering to defend himself? Why descend into this foolishness and dispute with people who can't be won over? And the answer to that hinges, of course, on what's good for the church. Because Paul, although he's responding to his critics, he's he's trying to win over the church as a whole. He says at the beginning, do bear with me. In other words, have patience while I explain myself. You need to hear this. He is concerned that they, hearing these uh, accusations out there, will become confused or disheartened. So he's speaking, if I could put it this way, to the good Corinthians who are a little confused. Uh, He wants to speak to them to set them straight. Paul does not rush to say, you know, in an effort to avoid any conflict, to say, well, it's beneath my dignity. These guys have their minds made up, so I'm not going to say anything. He cares about what the whole church needs. And that reflection reminds us of what Paul said back in chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, about how as we follow Jesus, sometimes we bear in our body the death of Christ. Entering into such a dispute, which at so many levels is just foolish and regrettable, but necessary, is a kind of suffering that Paul has to step into. And it does mirror the the saving work of our Lord Jesus. Remember when Jesus' critics got him nailed to the cross, and as he is up there doing his great works, they continue to mock him as he hangs there. And so Paul enters into this foolish dispute and he knows it will get him more abuse and mockery. And yet it's, it's a kind of echo of and participation in the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ in a reflective way. Our willingness to engage in grievous disputes from time to time for the good of others is a kind of cross-bearing. And to the extent in which we seek to help others, it is also what Paul calls the life of Jesus being manifested in our mortal bodies. It is a crucifixion and a resurrection echo that Paul is going through here. I want to look at the last three verses and then sum up. In the last three verses, I have given this the subtitle of Is There Ever a Time to Demonize Somebody?, No, <laughs> normally, <laughs> like, you don't. Basically, you know, it's very, very rare that you'd ever want to call somebody the devil incarnate because you're doing a couple things there. <clears throat> you're you are shortcutting listening to their arguments. And you never want to do that. You don't want to be yourself an unfair critic, right? If you are secure in the Lord Jesus, you should be able to interact with what they're saying. Besides, you you always want to model the grace of Christ ordinarily and offer to other people His mercy. So to kind of Demonized people is not our usual Mo. But Paul here calls his opponents false apostles. He compares them to Satan hiding his evil intentions, think of the serpent. They cloak their ambition under a sort of gospel preaching. And we have to see Paul's extreme language as relating to the extreme value of what they're attacking. We have to see his extreme language as relating to the extreme value of what they're attacking. Speaking of attacking things of extreme value, you may have heard earlier this week, a few days ago, there were some activists who threw soup at the Mona Lisa. Did you hear about that? So, thankfully they've they've been at, people like that are anticipated, I guess. It's already covered with glass. So, nothing was done, but by attacking something, attacking something that's irreplaceable, they were making a great statement, a shocking statement. Got attention by shocking. Well, Speaking of valuable things, what is more valuable than the atoning love of Jesus Christ given for his bride? And what is more precious than the pure devotion of the church to her Savior? That is precious beyond expression. And that is what is being attacked. And that is truly a devilish move. And so Paul has good reason for saying what he does. Besides, they have been at this for quite a while, it seems. Again, everybody in the church makes mistakes. Everybody. We don't ordinarily demonize people for their mistakes. We invite them to receive the grace of Christ. But people who purposely trip up other Christians, we talked about that last week, those who alienate people from Christ, whether by teaching or by example, are acting in precisely a devilish way. And we have to call it what it is. They are those who cause the little ones to stumble, and we know what Jesus thinks of that. Paul says in verse 15, their end will correspond to their deeds. Devilish a devilish spirit meets the fate of the devil. In other words, <clears throat> so this is a this is a pretty heavy passage and the The really wonderful thing about it, though, is it's so true to life. Everything this is saying, you can identify with, because this is life. I want to leave you with a couple things to think about as we wind down. First of all, about our tolerance for conflict. Let's not be energized by arguments and conflict. It is possible to treat conflict like an espresso shot. For some people, this is like caffeine. It's their energy. And it's what they do to kind of feel alive. In that case, the mud of conflict is, as it were, tracked over the whole house. As I say this, I'm not... I also want to acknowledge that there are people in the church who are more like the apologists and kind of want to go after the arguments and so forth. I commend that. But there's a difference between being valiant for truth, and being energized by conflict. And we have to just make that distinction in our minds. Always remembering that Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. What do you want? Do you want people to be reconciled to God? And if you do, that shows in the whole manner that you go about it. So it is necessary to, as it were, track in some dirt from time to time. And... You know, we have these kind of possible conflicts that come up on the horizon. You know, there might be a family member who's making a decision you really can't agree with and you have some choices to make. Or at church, they, or or at work rather, they've adopted a policy that just you feel is unbiblical and you have to figure out what to do. Or in the church, you know, you might overhear someone saying an error. And you have to think about, am I going to engage this or not? And if I do, How? Um, the world is full of mud and if you want to, I mean, there's conflict everywhere. I think the question is, what has God put in your sphere and why would you engage it? I think in order to keep your own testimony clear, yes. For the glo- If the glory of Jesus is, is being impinged on, yes. And from what this text is saying, if... If people are being drawn away from their Savior, then that is also something that calls for a response. In other words, if we see people who are kind of methodically injecting discouragement or doubt or stumbling into the life of the church in a sort of very cynical way, we have to stand up to that. We don't have the luxury to sort of rise above it. So... There's that, and this. This is just by way of kind of a reflection on our priorities. Finally, I just want I want to call all of our attention to verse three, because I think this is such a clarifying and helpful statement. Paul says what he wants is to promote a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That for a goal and a kind of motto, it would be hard to think of a better one. A sincere and pure devotion to Christ, how helpful that is. When you get up in the morning and you're mapping out your day and you're thinking about everything that's involved in that, in everything you do, it all needs to feed into that storyline of God's glory. At the very least, it needs to not contradict that storyline, right? Everything needs to be under that motto a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus. It's the same in the life of the church here. In all of our worship, in all of our programs, and all of our gatherings, and all of our activities, a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus Christ is what we aim for. And everything we do needs to fit clearly under that umbrella. Because what we are about at the end of the day is we are waiting for the bridegroom. And when he comes... We want to be ready. We want to be tuning our hearts right now for the day of his appearance. So this is why we dwell on the gospel of Jesus Christ, on his sacrificial death, on his resurrection to new life, and on the day of his glorious appearing. Let's pray. Our dear Father, we thank you for the greatness of our Savior and We pray that you would help us to be willing to resist whatever may come between his love and our true devotion. We pray that we would tune our hearts more and more to the grace of Jesus as we wait for the day of his appearing, and we ask it in his name, amen.